Man, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to 1 Corinthians chapter number 1. 1 Corinthians chapter number 1. And we're going to be starting a new series uh, this Sunday, this morning, called Extraordinary. And uh, we want to, in the next few weeks, study about some men that were extraordinary. Those men that followed the Lord Jesus Christ, whom we know as the disciples of Jesus. And we want to study what made them extraordinary. We want to start study about their life and how Christ transformed them. But we don't just want to look at it in a historical context as of what Christ did for them and how Christ made them extraordinary. We want to study how God wants to make you and I extraordinary today. God wants to use us just like he used them. You know, in the book of Acts, it says of those disciples, it says of them as a testimony, these men who have turned the world upside down. To turn our world upside down takes some extraordinary um, character. And yet these men were able to do that. And it wasn't because of their talent. It wasn't because uh, they were so gifted in and of themselves. But it was because of what Christ did in and through them. And we want to study about what that did for them and how Uh, We can relate to that and we can see what God wants to do with us and make us extraordinary as well. But as a introduction to this series, we're going to study this morning 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 down to verse number 31. Verse 18 down to verse 31. And we want to look at this morning how it is that God makes someone extraordinary. What are the tools that God uses to make us extraordinary? extraordinary look in verse number 18 if you will it says for the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness but unto us which are saved it is the power of God for it is written I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent where is the wise where is the scribe where is the disputer of this world hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God then by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks foolishness. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen. Yea, and the things which are not to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. Let's pray as we study this passage and then get introduced to this truth about being extraordinary. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. 
Thank you, Father, for the truth that we can find in your word, the truth that not only transforms us, but a truth that begins to mold us and to make us into what you would have us to be. So I pray this morning, Father, as we begin to study this passage, I pray that you would open up our minds, give us illumination by your Holy Spirit, that we might understand your word today, that we would apply it into our lives, that we'd be able to live out the truth that we learn about this morning. I pray that you would fill me with your spirit, that I might be able to communicate the truth that you have laid on my heart, the truth of this passage, and that, Father, I may be used by you and filled by your spirit. I pray that you would be with my thoughts this morning, be with my words, that I might uh, be able to uh, share only those things that you would have me to share. Father, if there be anything that you would have me not share, I pray that you would block it out of my mind and not allow me by your spirit to say it, but only by your power and by your spirit say what you would have me to say in this message. And I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the Christian life is not an ordinary life. When we examine the lives of those who have gone before us in the Christian life, we find that their lives really are not ordinary. Now, what makes them not be ordinary, what makes them extraordinary, isn't really what makes other people sometimes be extraordinary. For instance, there are people that can do some things that are not ordinary, 
and that are really just quite amazing to us. I think of a man by the name of Jack Lalani. He was uh, sometimes called or referred to as the first uh, fitness superhero. He was a man that was able to accomplish some, some feats of strength that were quite incredible. Feats like um, swimming the entire length of the Golden Gate Bridge with 140 pounds on his back. Uh, he was a man that was known to tow 70 boats, all right, 70 little uh, canoes with people in them while being handcuffed. And he swam across a channel there tugging these 70 boats. He's a man that's known for uh, doing 1,033 a, a push-ups in just 23 minutes. He was a man that even in his old age, at the age of 70, was doing some of these feats. And when you think about what he did, you, you think that's pretty incredible. When you think about someone like William Pruitt, who's known for completing the entire Kona course in five days. Now, if you don't know what the Kona course is for the Ironman, it's rather incredible. Uh, the world's competition for Ironman is held there in the state of Hawaii, and there's different courses. In fact, there's five different courses there, one on each island of the state of Hawaii, and they rotate every year as to which course they're going to use uh, to do the Ironman. Now, if you want to know how long it takes or what it takes to complete an Ironman, it's something very simple. All you have to do is swim 2.4 miles. Then after you get out of the water, you get on a bike and you're going to bike for 112 miles. Then after those 112 miles, you're going to put the bike away, change your shoes as quick as possible. <clears throat> and then you're going to run 26.2 miles. That's to complete one Ironman. But William Pruitt did five Ironmans in five days. In other words, every day he was doing that, swimming 2.4 miles, biking 112 miles, and running 26.4 miles. And I don't know about you, but that's pretty extraordinary. But you know, the extraordinary that I am talking about, the extraordinary of the Christian life isn't that. It's not found in these impossible feats that you can do in your Christian life. It's actually very, very different. What is it that makes then a Christian extraordinary? Well, the word extraordinary means to be exceptional in character, in amount, to the extent, to a degree, to be uh, exceptional or noteworthy and remarkable. That's what extraordinary means. Now, when you think about it, what makes then a Christian extraordinary? What makes him, in other words, different or noteworthy or remarkable? Well, in the book of 1 Corinthians this morning, as we study this passage, we're going to learn exactly what that means. You see, Paul here is writing this letter to the Corinthians, to this church there in the city of Corinth that was a, a very remarkable church, you could say. The church was full of people that were talented, they were smart, they were an accomplished people. Very educated people, very wise people. Yet, when you look at how the church functioned, you'll find that the church was full of disorder. It was full of divisions. It was full, uh, full of disgrace that was found in it. Though they had all these talented people, all these gifted people and educated people, yet you find that there was all this disorder, division, and disgrace. And, and Paul is writing to them, and he's trying to correct this. He's trying to correct their thinking. You see... 
the Christians there at Corinth thought that to be extraordinary, I got to have all these talents. I got to do some great things for God. I got to speak in different languages and different tongues. I got to have all these gifts, the gifts of healing and, and the gift of, of, uh, uh, of, of uh, prophecy and, and, and all these gifts of the Spirit. I, I got to have all of that. And, and so they began to, to look in themselves and say, no, well, how do I do better in that? And, and how do I make myself extraordinary in those areas? And they begin to look at themselves in that way and they begin to look at it being extraordinary as a Christian is having all these talents and doing all these feats for God. But can I tell you this morning that that's not what it means to be extraordinary as a Christian. And as Paul starts this letter, he begins by telling them that, in fact, the key verse of this whole chapter, or this whole book, I'm sorry, is found here in this first chapter. Paul basically lays out a little outline, if you will, of what he's going to talk about the rest of the book. And it's really about what it really means to be an extraordinary Christian. What does that really mean? What does that really look like? Well, I want you to notice this morning, if you have your notes, three ways or three tools, I should say, that God uses to make a Christian extraordinary. Notice, first of all, this morning that God uses his word. God's word. In verse number 18, it says, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. You see, what we preach is God's word. It is in this book, the Bible that you are holding in your hand, that we find the message of the gospel. Did you know that you will not find the gospel message in any other book? You will not find it in science books. You will not find it in history books. You will not find it in grammar books. The only book that you find the gospel of Jesus Christ is in his word. There's a lot of knowledge found in the history, science, and even the grammar books. But with all that knowledge, you don't find God. You don't find a relationship with Him. You don't find the truth about Him. It's only in God's book that you find the gospel, the message of the cross. Now, the message of the cross tells us that sin must be paid for. That's what the message of the cross is. You see... Sin came into our world, and because sin came into the world, there must be a price to pay for it. The Bible says, the, sin, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. The Bible says that by one man sin and in, entered into the world, and death by sin. In, in other words, because of what Adam decided to do, that one man... Adam, deciding to rebel against God, he brought sin into the world, and the punishment for sin is death. The message of the cross is that there is a penalty for sin, and that penalty is death. Do you know that's a penalty that we cannot pay? But the gospel message doesn't end there. The gospel message says that there is someone that paid that penalty, and that someone is Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus Christ went to the cross to pay a debt that you and I could not pay. It was a debt that he did not owe. But it was a debt we could never pay. And the wonderful part about the message of the cross is that after he paid that debt, he died and was buried and three days later rose from the grave. He arose to give us life. In fact, the Bible says, because he lives, we too shall live. See, this is the message of the cross. 
What makes a Christian extraordinary? It's about the Word of God. That's what makes a Christian extraordinary. It's the message that he gives. You see, the message that we give is a message of God's power. The Bible says there in verse 18 that it is the power of God. To many, this message seems like a weak message. To many that were there in the city of Corinth, a city that was Greek in its culture, uh, a city that was really mainly Gentile, though there were some Jews and a strong Jewish influence there, yet most of the city was Greek and Gentile. And when they would hear this message, they would think it's a little bit weak. You see, the cross was a symbol of death. Today we put crosses on our churches and we put crosses in our homes and it's a it's a reminder and it's a it's it's something that we love it's something that we uh we appreciate it's something that reminds us of the sacrifice that was paid by our savior but to those people in that time it would be like if we wore or put up an electric chair in our home it was something that associated with death with ending with shame like only the criminals and the worst of the worst criminals get the death penalty. Those that have uh, committed crimes beyond belief, those get the death penalty. The cross was that symbol in that day. The people that Paul is writing to about the message of the cross are looking at that cross and saying, that's a shameful death. That's the death of a criminal right there. That's only the worst of the worst that experience that. And yet Paul says, but that message is the power of God. It might seem weak to many. It might seem weak as to say, how could someone have that death? What all-powerful God would commit himself to death that way? You see, the Greeks were familiar with gods. Now, they had false gods, gods like the name of Zeus. Perhaps you've heard of that in history, in your history books or on TV at some point. But they worshipped the god Zeus. And they had many gods that way. And, and their gods that they worshipped were, were known as terrible gods. Gods that were made in the likeness of men. In fact, many of the idols that they worshipped of these gods, like Zeus and others, they, they looked sort of like men. There were these gods that had the image of man. And their character was much like man. They were, they, they were gods that they, they told stories of and worshipped. And, and the, the stories that they told were gods that whatever they wanted, they would get. They were gods that were full of revenge. They were gods that were gods of war. Uh, they had all these different kinds of types of god that reflected a lot of, of, of what their human nature was. And so when they saw and heard this message of the cross, they said, man, that's really weak. What kind of God would do that? What, what kind of God would not use his strength to get whatever he wants? Because the ones that they worshipped were those kinds of gods. But Paul said, but that's not the God that we worship. Yet this message of the cross, it's not a message of weakness. It's a message of power. You know, many today have this view of the cross still. They believe that it's weak, that it's irrelevant, that we don't need it. There are many in even our government, dare I say, in the United States government, that so despise the Word of God that they don't want anything to be represented with the United States and the name or the phrase, in God we trust. 
They want to take that off of our coins. There are those that want to take that off of our currency. There are those that work hard and have worked hard to get it out of our schools. And they've been successful. I don't know if you've seen But they were successful in trying to take prayer out of our schools. They were successful in taking the creation story out of our curriculums. Uh, Because, you know, uh, back in the early time of American history, they taught that in public schools. They taught the Bible. In fact, one of the first acts that we had as, as a government was that all of our children needed to learn the Bible. They needed to learn to read. Public education came into being so that we would know how to study the Bible. The fear was for those founding fathers that a generation might grow up and not be able to know the truth of God's word. But look how far we've moved now. Now that message that is full of power is seen as weakness by many. But I'm here to remind you this morning that the Bible and the gospel message still is the power of God. Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. In other words, everybody can come to this message and accept Christ. It is, the Bible says, the power of God. My friend, what's going to make you and me extraordinary isn't how, look, how good we look and how good we do in school. It's not the education and the titles that we receive. You know what's going to make you and me extraordinary this morning is the message that we give. A Christian is only extraordinary when he gives the message of Jesus Christ. Why? Because it is the power of God. But not only is it the power of God, it is a message of God's wisdom. Look at, if you will, there uh, in verse number 20. He says, where is uh, the wise and where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? Verse 24, but unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Paul begins to call out some of those that were in Corinth, some of those great philosophers, some of those great scholars, these educated people. And he says, have you not seen how God has put down that education of the wise, supposedly? Have you not seen what man's wisdom has brought upon himself? This morning, I don't know if you know this, but uh, this morning, according to statistics, uh, youth suicide is on the rise. Divorce is on the rise. I don't know if you know this, but one of the uh, sharpest um, statistics that went up when they started to legalize alcohol here in this nation was divorce. The divorce used to be very, very low. It's amazing that a poison like alcohol could have that effect. And yet there's so many today that say, well, what's so bad about it? What's so wrong with it? I, I don't see if you just have one little drink. How bad can that be? It can be bad enough to get you hooked and get your marriage to be broken. That's how bad it can be. It can be bad enough to get you so drunk that you get behind a wheel and take the life of someone else. I've heard stories and know people that lost their children because someone was drunk. Because someone decided that it wasn't really nothing too bad with alcohol. Sadly, we have many Christians that are falling for that trap as well. 
trying to justify a way that we can just have a little bit of fun and look a little bit like the world. Let me say, as Christians, we don't become extraordinary by having a little bit of the world in our life. We don't become extraordinary by a message that leaves God's power out and leaves God's wisdom out. You know that God only wants what's best for you and for me. The world has decided that they don't want what's God's best. They look at it as something weak. They look at it as something foolish. You'll notice that Paul says, yeah, there's many that are educated that think the message of the cross is something foolish. They don't understand it. The word foolish is the Greek word moriah, where we get moron, the word moron from. It means absurd, ridiculous, crazy. Many believe that the message of the gospel is simply just absurd and ridiculous. They reject it as something that is uh, not fully functioning for a brain. Many professors and many of you college students can attest to this as you go to school tomorrow morning. You go to classes with professors that think that this book is absurd. They think that the wisdom of God doesn't really matter and is irrelevant for today because we are more evolved. We're beyond what the Bible says. We're smarter than people were 100 years ago and 200 years ago. They think that the gospel message is something that has no power behind it, that has no wisdom to it. They believe that science has all the answers and they look to science for their problems. They look at themselves inward. It's called humanism and secularism. And they look to themselves to find the answer. And all they ever find is emptiness. You can Google if you want some of the great philosophers' last words, and none of them are comforting. Many of them are very fatalistic. Many of them say, well, whatever. I guess it's over. I found no happiness in life. I probably won't find it in death. There's no joy to this life. There's no purpose to this life. And these are the educated, most philosophical people in our history. Because they decided that the message of the cross and of the gospel wasn't really God's wisdom for them. How can we explain or comprehend what the gospel message has done for the world? I simply say, look at the history of this nation. And look what the gospel has done for this country. It's done something and set it apart from every other nation in the world. You know, we're one of the youngest nations in the world. You know, Europe is like a thousand or more years older than the United States. Every country in Europe. And yet, the most powerful of them is the United States. We're the world's leader economically. We're the world's leader militarily it's amazing what's been the difference that's because americans are so smart no that ain't it it's because the americans are just so much better than everyone no that ain't it it's not american exceptionalism that's found in just how talented we are though there might even be some conservative radio host that would say that but that's not where American exceptionalism comes from. It comes from the fact that the gospel and the message of the cross came to the hearts of our founding fathers. 
And not only those, but those of this nation that founded this nation. And many of the immigrants that came over to this nation were looking for religious liberty. That's why they were here. They weren't looking for jobs and and a better life and an American dream. Many of them were just trying to escape some of the persecution that was happening there in Europe. They were just looking to practice the gospel message of Jesus Christ. You see, because it's a message that has power. And it's a message that has God's wisdom. You ask me, what makes a Christian extraordinary? I'll tell you. Paul said, it's the preaching. Though the world might say it's foolishness, we know that it is the power of God. God's word, that message that he's given you and me to give to others, that message that we receive will make us extraordinary. But I want you to notice not only is it God's word, but also God's work. Notice there in verse number 26, it says, For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. Verse 27, But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty, and base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen. I want you to notice that Paul says what makes us extraordinary is not only God's word, but God's work. You see, when we have God's word in our life and heart, his spirit begins to work in us to transform us into something new and extraordinary. Notice how he does this. Paul says, first of all, that he uses the simple to confound the wise or the foolish. To be simple here is the same word as foolish. It's the same word that's used in verse number 18, Mariah, absurd. God uses those whom the the world would call stupid, if you will. God uses them to confound the most intelligent of the world. It's amazing when you look at what God has used. You know, God's not looking this morning for intelligent people, the most intelligent people. You know, there are places that only look for the most intelligent people. If I were to say the college by the name of Harvard, you would say, oh, that's a college for the top of the class. Only the smartest get the scholarships there. Only the smartest get to go to those Ivy League schools like Yale. They're only looking for the top academic students. And if you want to have a full-ride scholarship to one of those schools, you've got to be the top in your class. But you know that God's not looking for the top of the class. God's not against intelligence. But God knows that intelligence starts with Him. In fact, the Bible says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. God knows That today, if you really want a real education and have real intelligence in your life, it starts with the Word of God and the work of God in your life. That's why Paul begins to focus on that. He begins to say, listen, I know that people might say that what you and I believe is foolish and ridiculous and crazy. And they might think that you're a little bit dumber than everyone else. But you know, God likes to use the simple to confound the wise. God likes to use those of us that are just willing to come to him and say, I need more of your wisdom in my life. I need more of your spirit in my life. God does not need a kind of intelligence 
that is absent of his word to accomplish his work. He just needs someone who will find their wisdom in him. Paul says, I want you to know that God, when he begins to work in the life of someone, he works not looking on what your GPA is. He just looks to see how surrendered your heart is. He just wants to see, is there someone out there that's still willing to say, hey, where you go, I will follow. Is there anyone left out there that says, here am I, Lord, send me. Is there anyone that says, hey, God, if that's what you want me to do, if that's where someone needs to go, God, I will go. God, if you need me to tell somebody the message of Christ at school tomorrow, you can use this mouth that you gave me so that I can do your work. You see, this morning, God uses the simple to confound the wise. He's not looking what your GPA is. He's looking just for you, looking for your heart. But God's work doesn't stop with the simple confounding the wise. As the Bible says there, he uses the weak to confound the mighty. I think about God's people when they were in Egypt. You remember the story there in the book of Exodus. As they had fallen into slavery for 400 years to the Egyptians, the most powerful nation on earth had them captive as slaves. And God takes just a little baby, a little baby, one who was shy and unsure of himself, one who had all this education that didn't really do him much. And you'll notice when you study the book of Moses, that when he tried to do it his way, he just murdered somebody. And made no change. But when he runs away and God gets a hold of him, 40 years in that desert, God gets a hold of him. Suddenly, he's not ordinary anymore. Suddenly, what he can do is extraordinary. Suddenly, this guy that's just stuttering and scared and insecure is suddenly the strongest man on earth. A man that's going to confront the most powerful man on earth and bring him to his knees. Who does that? How does that happen? It happens when God's work in your life becomes real. He'll take the weak and confound the strong with it. In fact, Paul said it like this later in the book of Corinthians, where he says, God told me, my grace is sufficient for thee. We find that the scriptures teach us that he uses the weak to confound the strong. Confound the strong. Zechariah 4, 6 says, Then he answered and spake unto me, saying, This is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. This morning, what's going to make you extraordinary? It's God's working in your life. It's God's working in your life. You see, he uses the simple to confound the wise. He uses the weak to confound the mighty. But he uses the base to confound the noble. You know, the word base here means to have no family or descent. 
you know, something that was really big in the culture in the city of Corinth, and it's still probably big today, it's what kind of descendant you have. What is your last name? We see this very often in politics. You see a, a guy that was really high in politics, and normally his uh, family will be very involved in politics. We see this, for instance, in the Bush family here in Texas. If you know anything about uh, President Bush, George H.W. Bush was our 40, 41st president. His son, George W. Bush, Bush was the 43rd president. And, and in their family, their ne uh, nieces, nephews, brothers, many of them are involved in politics. And just that name carries a lot. I mean, if I were to be able to tell you, hey, I have George Bush's number in my cell phone, y'all would probably be a little bit impressed. I'd be impressed. Because it means something. But Paul says, you know that God, God doesn't really care what your family last name is. God doesn't care what your social status is and how well you're known. If you're going to be extraordinary, I want you to know that God says, I can use even the base. Those without family, with big name, without a social status to do some great things. You know that the Bible is full of those kinds of people. If you read the book of Judges, you'll find the story of Ehud, just a left-handed guy, farmer out there that God used to bring victory to Israel. There's a guy by the name of Gideon, a guy that was hiding at one point for his life, very cowardice in what was going on, and yet God used him and 300 men to defeat an army of 145,000. You see that in the book of Samuel, there was just this little shepherd boy by the name of David, who his family wasn't much and didn't have much. And he was just a guy that would go and watch sheep every day. And yet God used him to kill a giant and become Israel's greatest king. What I'm telling you this morning is if you're going to be extraordinary, you've got to understand that the God that you and I serve, the God that wants to work in your life is what will make you extraordinary. It's not who you are. It's not what you've done. It's just about what he has done and what he is doing. I like what Isaiah 66, 2, it says. I think it's in your notes. For all those things hath mine hand made, God said, and all those things have been, saith the Lord. But to this man will I look, even to him that is poor and of a con contrite spirit and trembleth at my word. God says, you want me to work in your life? It's not going to be because you think I'm so good and I'm so important. And God says, I can't use someone like that. I use the base things in life. Those without the big name to do the great things. Man, we don't have time, but if we could go through some of the history of just the great preachers that have come through our nation. And not only in our nation, but in the nation of England, you'd find that many of them were the poorest of poor. Men like D.L. Moody was just a shoemaker. But God used them to shake two continents for the cause of Christ. I'm simply saying this morning, if you're going to be extraordinary in the Christian life, you're going to need to have God's word in your life. You're going to need to have God's work in your life. But thirdly, 
Paul points to God's worth in your life. Verse 29 says that no flesh should glory in his presence, but of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. You see, God uses who he is to make us extraordinary. God uses his own worth to make you and I extraordinary. You see, because when we belong to him, the Bible says his worth becomes ours. The Bible says his righteousness becomes our righteousness. His sanctification is our sanctification. He becomes our redemption. I want you to notice what Paul highlights here, the worth of Christ in us. You see, the Bible says there in verse number 30 that the Lord Jesus has made unto us wisdom. Why has he made wisdom unto us? It's to transform our minds, to transform our minds. In him, Colossians 2, 3 says, are hid all the treasures of wisdom. The fabled wisdom of Solomon is nothing to be compared to the wisdom that is found in Jesus Christ. Christ is the omniscient one, the all-knowing one. Instead of relying this morning on your own mental capacities and on your own mental, uh, mental abilities, understand this morning that you can draw from the infinite wisdom of Christ today. You say, why does that matter? Because you know what? Throughout today and throughout this week, we're going to have to make some decisions. Some of you have some difficult family decisions that you have to make. Don't try to figure it out on your own. Some of you have some very difficult decisions as to your marriage and some many difficult decisions as to your job and your workplace. Don't try to make those decisions on your own. Don't try to just rely on your logic to figure it out. There's someone that has infinite wisdom that you can ask. In fact, the Bible says in the book of James, if any lack wisdom, let him ask of me. Let him ask of God who giveth liberally. This morning, Christ has become our wisdom to transform our minds. But Paul says he's also become our righteousness to transform our morals. You know, the world standards of right and wrong are sort of relative. They're cultural. They're accommodating. They say, uh, it's okay over there. If it's okay over there, it must be right. Depending where you are, depending the culture that you're in determines right or wrong. But we know that the righteousness of God is not dependent upon the culture that we live in. The, cult, the righteousness of God is absolute. God's standards are absolute, universal, and inflexible and are based on His holiness. His absolute holiness. You know that word holiness, it means to be set apart. You see, the genius of the gospel lies in the fact that He clothes us in His righteousness. In other words, when we come to Christ for his salvation, the Bible says this, he made Christ to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God, that he might transform our morals in our life, our understanding of right and wrong. Right and wrong isn't up to you and me. We determine what is right and wrong according to the standards of God. 
Man, if it were up to me, there would be a whole lot of things I probably would let go. I would say, well, what's so bad about dancing? And what's so bad about drinking? What's so bad about smoking? And what's so bad about partying? But you know what? My emotions and my mind is not the standard in which we live by. It's not the righteousness found in Jeremy. It's the righteousness found in God. Then I want you to notice thirdly, the Lord Jesus Christ is made to be our sanctification so that we can transform our motives. The word for sanctification literally there is also holiness. It means to be set apart for God. It stands for the kind of life that belongs to those who are separated. Let me give you a little bit of what the difference is between righteousness and sanctification. Righteousness has to do with our standing. Sanctification has to do with our state. Righteousness meets the demands of the law. Sanctification meets the demands of the Lord. Righteousness is imputed to us by Christ when we put our faith in Him. But sanctification is implemented in us by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Righteousness has to do with what we ate by our natural birth sinners. Sanctification has to do with what we have become through our new birth saints. As a sinner, I am motivated to live a sinful life, but as a saint, I am motivated to live a sanctified life. That is our life in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, he he begins to work in us his worth. That's what makes us extraordinary. His worth makes us wise. Who he is makes us righteous. Who he is makes us sanctified. And listen, what he did makes us redeemed. You see, the Lord Jesus is made unto us redemption to transform our members. While we have redeemed souls, we do not have yet our redeemed bodies. Romans 8 says we're looking forward to that day, and I can't wait for that day. I really can't. I had some friends this weekend that were not feeling very well. I can't wait for the day when we never have to get sick again. I can't wait for the day when we don't have to cry about something anymore, when there's no more pain and no more death. I I can't wait for that time where it doesn't matter if I'm 80 or 90, it's still going to feel like I'm 20. Because that body is going to be a redeemed, a new body. You see, Christ has been our redemption to transform that. To change our body that's susceptible to death and disease and decay to one that is eternal. To one that will never see death again. One that no longer has those sinful desires working in us, but one that only has God-pleasing desires in us. I want you to notice, lastly, not only his worth in us, but his worthiness in his person. In verse 31, Paul says that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. You see, only God is worthy of all praise and worship. What will make you and me extraordinary this morning is when we give glory and honor to the only one that deserves glory and honor. There's nothing greater than to see another man or another woman give glory to the one to whom glory is due. To give worship to that King of Kings and that Lord of Lords. What makes a Christian extraordinary? What made the disciples so different than the rest of those people in that first century? What made them extraordinary? God's word, 
God's work and his worth. You see, we see this in every person who has been transformed by God's power. But I wonder about you this morning. How are you doing? We have so many Christians today that are not living extraordinary lives because they're not allowing God to work. They're not retaining God's word in their life. And they've ceased to see God's worth. And what they're living is just ordinary lives. Can I encourage you today? God wants you to be extraordinary. But it's your decision. It's your decision as a Christian this morning to allow God to work in you. To allow God's word to be in your heart. And to look to God as the God worthy of praise and glory. Paul said, let the man that glory, glory in this, that he knoweth God. This morning, I want to encourage you. Let's be extraordinary Christians. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. And thank you for this wonderful reminder of what it means to be extraordinary. Oh, Father, I I don't know of any Christian that loves you that doesn't want to be extraordinary. Father, all too often your children were living as just ordinary Christians. We've not come to those basic truths that Paul was reminding that church in Corinth. And Father, that's what we need today. I pray that we would apply these truths and remember them and live them out. That, Father, we, we can look back and, and see how that our Christian life was extraordinary. Not because of us, but because of you. We ask this in Jesus' precious name.